All right, tonight we'll be studying Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Before we get into the text, does anyone want to begin this evening by giving public praise for something that God has done? Could be something that you saw God do this week, or something that you saw in the scriptures that encouraged you. Uh, could be something that God did in your life last year or five years ago, and um, and you just want to give public praise for it, Matt. All right, someone else? Clayton? Uh, praise the Lord for how that worked out. One of the concerns that Clayton and Sarah had was the timing of all this, trying to be able to to get uh, their house sold and and uh, moved out in enough time to get over to the house they'll they'll be paying for over there. So um, the Lord the Lord knew all that and uh, yeah. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, Bill. Yeah. All right, good. Good to hear how God is worthy of our praise. Anything else? Norma. Let's uh, praise God for these things and uh, pray for, for help tonight as we look at the text. Lord, we're thankful for, that we can point to specific times in which you answered our prayers and that you uh, went before us knowing what we needed even before we asked. And so we're thankful for how you provided for Matt and Melissa. And um, this, uh, in terms of the big scheme of things, it, it's not very large, but, but in terms of um, what they asked for and and what you gave them, it is big, 
for you to come through and, and to show yourself strong. We're thankful also for providing for the Sallies a buyer for their house and, and also for Gail being able to find a house quickly without um, a whole lot of stress. And I pray that the transition would go well. Thankful also for how you've uh, just opened potentially another door here for Bruce uh, for a job. And, and so, Lord, we want to acknowledge your worth and praise you for your greatness. Lord, we're thankful that you are the God who is here and who cares about all of our needs. And we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly in the text of Scripture and respond in a way that would uh, glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This 48th Psalm was written by the sons of Korah and is a uh, praise psalm that focuses on God's attributes and his acts of mercy. And this one focuses specifically on the fact that God is near, that God is in the city. Uh, specifically Zion here. So let me read our text for us. Psalm 48. This is the Word of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Here we see that the great God of Zion deserves our highest praise because He is near. The God who is near deserves our highest praise. This psalm focuses specifically on the city of Jerusalem, Zion, this mountain in the far north. And it begins with the call to praise God for His presence. Praise God for His presence in verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. One of the things that the Psalms often do, as I've mentioned before, is that they introduce the topic of the, of the Psalm with, within the first few verses. So a lot of times you can understand what the whole Psalm is about if you just look at the first few verses. And in this case, it's no different. We are to greatly praise God in the city of God, His holy mountain, that is, the city of Zion. And so we're, what we're supposed to do, we see that in the, the first line, we, God is great and He is greatly to be praised. So we're supposed to praise Him. And why are we supposed to do that? Well, because He is great within in this city, the city of Jerusalem. So what is it that makes Jerusalem so special? What is it that makes Mount Zion so special? Verses 2 and 3. Let's see if I've got... Yeah. 
First, its beauty and renown. In other words, its fame, its worldwide popularity. What's so special about Zion? Why should we praise God in this city or because of this city? And verse 2 says that this city is beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of the whole earth. That the whole earth at some point will look at Zion and, and praise God for it because of its beauty. Now, what makes it so beautiful? I mean, what makes this city so world-renowned? And the answer is, in who resides there? Notice the second part of verse 2. It says it's the, the city of the great king. This city is not just any city. It's not just any city that's uh, brightly adorned or, or has some great structures. Remember, the, the disciples were walking through with Jesus and said, look at these great stones. Isn't this amazing? And remember, Jesus said, well, they're all going to be rubble. But the, but the point of the city of why it was so beautiful, Jesus recognized is not so much of the city itself or the structures. It was because God was there. And that, that's, what, that's what's going on here in this psalm. Notice it's in the far north, in um, the middle of verse 2, is Mount Zion in the far north. Now, it could be that, that, um, that he's talking about a topograph or a geographical location. But if you think about it, Jerusalem is actually in the south of Israel. So what is he talking about when he's saying the far north? Could he, could he be saying maybe the far north of the city? Well, actually, if you, if you look at the Hebrew word behind the words far north, it's, it's a word, zaphon, which is a word that describes a place of worship in the Canaanite culture. They believed that there was this one specific place. The place where they were to worship was in zaphon. So it's a city of the the the, um, the best place for worship the the place of true worship was Zaphon the far north and so what God is saying is He's kind of um, borrowing their term the Canaanites term and saying do you know where true worship is true worship is here at Zion where God resides that's the point in other words you don't have to go to their city Zaphon you you can come here to Jerusalem. You see, Zion is great because God is there. It's great because of its beauty and its renown. It's great because of who resides there. It's God. He has, uh, the second part of verse 3 says that He has made Himself known as a stronghold. So, if we think about Jerusalem, there's nothing topographically superior about it in terms of other mountains. You know, there are probably better fortress cities than Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem didn't have the best walls, but it does have something that no other city can boast. At this time, at the time of its writing and throughout the and, and into the future, and that is that it's the location of God's home. It's where the temple resided, right? And that's what makes the city strong. That's what makes the city great. God is there. He is its stronghold or or he is her stronghold. He defends it. And notice how the nations respond to Jerusalem because God is there. The nations respond in verses 4 through 7 with fear. First, they assemble. They assemble to fight. Verse 4 For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. The, the, all the Gentile nations kind of gather up, or at least some troops from a nation gather their troops together to overpower Jerusalem. But what happens? 
they end up fleeing away or leaving in terror. In verses 5 and 6, they saw it, the city, and then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. So instead of leaving the city with victory and the spoils that come with victory and great confidence, the nations leave with nothing except for their heightened fear. And notice this description of it in verse 5. The second part of the verse, they were terrified. They fled in alarm. And then verse 6, panic and anguish. This anguish as of a woman in childbirth is not that it's just deeply painful. It's probably actually fearful because in the ancient Near East, many of the mothers who would give birth would, would end up dying during childbirth. And so it was fearful to actually deliver a baby. And so that's probably the point here. They were so terrified, so much in anguish, gripped with fear, like we don't know what's going to happen to us, that they turn away and run. And then verse 7, they end up leave, leaving broken. These ships here, notice, with the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish. God has no problem just breaking up their ships. Now the ships of Tarshish were not any small little sailboat or kayak or something like that. These are large ships, large cargo ships that would have to make its way all across the, the Mediterranean. And so it would, it would be made for, for going through long distances and rough waters. And God destroyed them, no problem. We broke it like a toothpick. And so they, they come to do battle. They come to win. And they leave fearful and broken. Now, as I've already kind of indicated, uh, this psalm was written historically, written by the sons of Korah. But but when exactly does this take place? Is this something that that, that Israel was supposed to be thinking about with regard to the conquest, maybe? That, that God was there in Jerusalem and He was providing shelter and safety for them? Or is it predictive of what will happen in the future? Is it something that, that we will look forward to when, when our enemies come up against us, God's there and He's protecting us there at Zion? Well, the text doesn't make it clear. But it seems to me that this is a psalm that could have been sung in the past when Israel was victorious, you know, when David was king and the, and the throne was there and, and the temple was there. Actually, that wasn't until Solomon came along. But, but as the kings kind of lived and, and operated out from Zion... They could have sung a psalm like this to remind them that God is their stronghold and that they are strong as long as God is there. Or this psalm could be talking about a song that, was sung, that will be sung in the Millennial Kingdom because you realize the temple is going to be reestablished. We call it the Millennial Temple. It's, called, it's the temple that's going to be in operation during the time of the Millennial Kingdom. Now, there's some uh, discussion as to why that is. Like, why do we need sacrifices? Why do we need to, to have all this, this formal structure set up when Jesus has already died for sins? Um, those, the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin, so why, why have the millennial temple? And I think the reason for it is it's going to be much like our Lord's Supper, that it will be uh, commemorative or a memorial of what, those sacrifices were supposed to be pointing to. In other words, in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices pointed to the one true 
and great sacrifice, Jesus, right? Now, on the other side of the cross, here in the Millennial Temple, we'll, have the, we'll be able to go and, and watch Israel as they participate in all the sacrifices and so on. And it will be a memorial of, of um, what had taken place. And it, it's for the purpose of reminding them of, of the fact that Jesus is the satisfaction of the temple. He's the satisfaction of the Old Testament sacrifice. He is the perfect lamb. All the things that those various animals did to, to, to bring atonement for sins, right? Jesus sums all of that up in his one perfect sacrifice. So he, he acts as our scapegoat. He acts as our, our substitute. He, we, we are able to, um, to be free from our sins. And so all of those aspects will come back together in the Millennial Temple as a reminder to us of what Christ's sacrifice ultimately does. And so this psalm could be referring to a time in which we will sing this and be protected from our enemies there at Zion. And I think that's probably more likely. And part of the reason I think that is because of verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. That is, it seems like all the people on the globe um, who are under the, the rule of Jesus Christ will enjoy Mount Zion. They will, they will take great pleasure in it. And, and so that seems to make the most sense. As far as who will be fighting against him, well, you know at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, or perhaps you don't, but um, there, there is going to be a battle. And, and Jesus will have no trouble winning that battle when Satan gathers all those those troops up uh, and he will defeat them with simply a word from his mouth so the nations come they gather to fight but they run away in fear and they're left broken and so their response is one of fear so what, what about our response what is Israel's response or our response now that we look back on this what is our response how should we respond to this city uh, that is indwelt by God and verses 8 through 11 tell us that, that we should respond with faith God's people respond to the city and dwell by God with faith. In verse 8, we see that God's people are confident that He will establish an eternal dwelling place in Zion. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of our God of hosts, in, in the city of our God, God will establish her, that is Zion, forever. Turn back to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. And we know that God will establish an eternal dwelling place in Zion because we have record of it here or predictive prophecy here in Revelation 21 of what will take place. Because what's going to happen is the heavenly Jerusalem will come out of heaven and descend onto the new heavens and new earth and it will be established as the main city on the globe. Revelation 21 verse 1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea And I saw the holy city new Jerusalem or we could say new Zion coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And the first things have passed away. Let me just um, explain here 
when this happens chronologically. This happens after the Millennial Kingdom. This happens after all sin and, and the consequences of sin have been completely removed from the earth. Satan will have been defeated completely. He's going to be in the, the lake of fire forever. All of the people who have ever opposed God for all time will be in the lake of fire. Following the recreation, that is the what I think is probably a reconstituting of this earth, he'll destroy this earth with fire and then reconstitute it as a new heavens and a new earth. And, and that's, that's when God comes and sets down his boundaries, this cubed-shaped city. And, and basically the entire Zion is God's city. It's, it's, a, it's a city that goes from the, the northern part of the United States down to about Oklahoma and from the Mississippi all the way over to California. That's about, that's about the square um, mileage of it. And then it goes up just as high as it is wide and long. It's in the shape of a cube, which map, matched uh, in Ezekiel the, the shape of the most holy place. Right? If, you, if you are to look at the dimensions of the, uh, the temple and the tabernacle before it, the, the most holy place, the place where the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant was, was also in the shape of a cube. That was the place where God resided. But now it's going to be much larger, right? And, and God's going to live in this city. He's going to come down to the earth. Uh, and so we will be able to dwell with the triune God forever, be able to see Him face to face. And, and so we know that this day is coming, that there will be a Zion that is set up forever. Turn back to Psalm 48 now. This should be for us and should have been for the first readers and singers of this psalm, should be for us a message of confidence that throughout the ages we have confidence that God will dwell in Zion forever. That, that when He established this city from the Old Testament times, uh, He was establishing something that, that would set a precedent or foreshadow what He would do all the way through the end times. And that is to live in this city where we can be in His unshielded presence forever. And so God turns this city into a permanent dwelling place. And then in verse 9, we see that God's people know that God's presence is necessarily linked to His loyal love. First, God's people are confident that He will establish an eternal dwelling place. And then God's people know that His presence is necessarily linked to His loyal love. Verse 9, We have thought on Your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of Your temple. So as we're in the temple, we reflect on the fact that, that You are a loving, kind God. That is, a, a loyally loving God. In verse 10, God's people know that God's presence demands their praise. In other words, God's reputation deserves and demands our praise. That as we think about God, at the end of verse 10, your right hand is full of righteousness. As we think about it, it results in the first part of the verse, so is your praise. As is your reputation, O God, so is your praise. In other words, our reputation needs to be in keeping with God's, or, or excuse me, our praise needs to be in keeping with God's reputation. To the extent that God's uh, reputation is great. Our praise needs to be on that same kind of level. That's what God deserves. Verse 11, we see that God's people know that His presence is reason to be joyful. Let Mount Zion be glad. 
or joyful. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice or be joyful because of your judgments. So here's some parallelism here, uh, as you often see in Hebrew poetry. Let them be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. The same idea in both, both lines. Why? Because of your judgments. Why are the people joyful? Because of God's judgments. That God is going to carry out His judgments on His and consequently our enemies. God is going to follow through on bringing down judgment on them. And so that's something for us to be joyful about, just like it was for Israel. So we finish where we started. In verses 1 through 3, we saw that we should praise God for His presence in Zion. And in verses 12 through 14, we see the same thing. We need to praise God for His presence in Zion. That's what this text is about. God is present among His people, and we need to give Him praise. How do we do this? Well, we need to recognize that why the city is strong. Verse 12, walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts. So you kind of see that the psalmist here has kind of taken us on a tour. Okay, Just kind of look up at the structures. Do you see all that? You see all that beauty and the great strength in this city? Okay, you got that in your mind? You see these great high towers? The point of all that is not to, to uh, give praise to the city, obviously, but to acknowledge that the city stands for something. And why is that? What is so strong about this city? What's so great? It's the same thing we've already seen. That is, that the city is great because God is there. And so, we need to recognize that. Um, so as we're walking through the city, we recognize that God is there. And, and then what do we do with that? Well, we, we recognize why it's important that we know that. Why is it so important that we know that the city of Zion is strong? Why, let's think about the, money, or the eternal state when we are in the city of Zion. Why is it so important that we think about the fact that this city is strong? Well, because no one can... No one can get in. No one can come or go without authority from God. That is, you know, as we saw in Revelation 21, there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more dying. It's not going to come into God's city because He is there. He makes it strong. We need to um, recognize this. And one of the ways that we bring praise to God is by telling future generations. Notice, at the end of verse 13, that you may tell it to the next generation. One of the reasons that we need to reflect on the greatness and the power of the city, one of the reasons we need to know that the city is strong because God is there is because we need to let the next generation know. Certainly we must give praise to God. That's one of the purposes we know that the city is strong and we know that God is there. It's so that we give present praise. But but do you realize that one of our responsibilities as individuals, just like it was for Israel, is to pass on God's fame to future generations? Pass on the news of God's greatness so that for generation after generation they can hear and see for themselves that the Lord is powerful and worthy of praise. So we want to tell future generations and we also want to be reminded ourselves of God's faithfulness for such is God our God forever and ever he will guide us unto de- until death the strength of this city reminds God's people of his greatness of his faithfulness that he will guide us all the way until death so that no matter what 
threats come, we can be confident that God is there. All right, a couple of principles here to, to consider tonight. Number one, the strength of an institution is based solely on whether God is there. The strength of an institution or an individual is based solely on whether God is there. We've already seen the reason that Mount Zion is so strong is because of no merit of her own. The only merit that Mount Zion has or the only reason that Mount Zion is great is because God is there. Israel is not great on its own. God said, I didn't choose you because you were any better than anybody else or because you were more numerous. I chose you because you were small and weak. and I wanted to display my power through you. And the only reason that Mount Zion is great is not because it's a perfect piece of land or that it has the best uh, fortress or, or whatever. It's because God is there. And the same thing we could say about this church. There's nothing special on our own makes us great or powerful or strong. There's nothing in our history that would suggest, hey, this, this is a great body of believers because of something that they did. You and I and all who have gone before us are not great on our own. We sing a song that says, No merit of my own. His anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. And so the only reason that you and I are great is because God resides in us through the person of His Holy Spirit. The only reason that this body is great is because God is here. So the strength of any institution or person is based solely on whether God is there. Secondly, uh, our response to God's presence should be faith. When we recognize that God is here, then our response should be one of faith. We should see how God has worked in the past, how He has defeated enemies, how He has made them run away in fear, and, and, and that we are inside of this walled city, so to speak, with God there protecting us. And who better to have on our side? We may look at the de degenerating society around us and the threat of the nations, the terrorism, and so on but we don't have to fear because our God will win in the end. Sure, they may take our lives. They may torture us. They may do all sorts of terrible things to us, but, but we know that in the end, God will have His way. God will have the final victory. God will have the final say. The nations are going to be turned away in the end in terror and panic and anguish. Now, this is not a promise for every enemy of Israel. I hope you recognize that, right? Because there have been several successful enemies of Israel that have taken over even that this actual city of Zion, right? And so this is not a promise to say, Israel, you'll never be defeated. You'll never lose. But instead, this is a guarantee that in the end, God will win. That, that in the end, we'll be able to look back on a psalm like this and say, yes, God was right. He was there. In other words, he, he had the final victory over his enemies. Notice again in verse 14 the confidence that comes when we reflect on the presence of God. That at the end it says, He will guide us until death. And so this should do something for us. When we see what God has done to enemies throughout the ages, and when we 
are assured of what God will do in the future, this should give us confidence or this should increase our faith. And, and um, is this something that you could say would be something that would describe you, that, that God guides you until death at the end of verse 14? So our response first should be one of faith. Secondly, it should be one of joy. In verse 2, it says that this city is the joy of the whole earth. In verse 9, it says, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God. And as we've thought about this, verse 11, it makes us glad and it makes us rejoice. Mount Zion's glad and daughters of Judah rejoice. Turn over to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And let me just show you a text that you probably are familiar with. That, that we should, of all people, we should not be going around life moping as if we're defeated foes, as if we're defeated enemies of God, or, or even, you know, we're, we're, we're failures. What does Paul command us to do here in Philippians 4? 4, 4? He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. So, notice the content of our joy. It is in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't just rejoice in anything. Don't rejoice over you know, things that are passing away. Rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, as you recognize your position before God, you ought to be a person of great joy. Now, he's not calling for a plastic smile or ignorance of the evils that are going on in the world, right? There is a time for sorrow, absolutely. But he's saying that even in that sorrow, there should be joy. What he's calling for is for us as believers to find our greatest happiness, our greatest contentment in the Lord. Because we have read the first page that God created it all, and we've read the last page that Christ will have the final victory. Listen to uh, Don Carson on this. He says, "Should Should we not, of all people, take joy in this life and what we have promised for the next Certainly our 70 years on this earth can be filled with difficulty, but we have eternity waiting for us. Secured by the Son of God, we will see Christ face to face and spend eternity with Him. And if we fail to respond with joy and gratitude when we are reminded of these things, it's either because we have not properly grasped the depth of the abyss of our own sinful nature, or because we have not adequately surveyed the splendor of the heights to which we have been raised. He's saying in, in terms of where we stand in relation to what God has for us in eternity, Christ has secured for us an eternal home with Him and a relationship with our Father and all the rewards that come along with that. And so, yes, our lives of 70 years may be filled with difficulty, but in terms of what we have waiting for us, it should fill us with great joy. And if it doesn't, then we don't fully understand where we've come from, the depths of our sin, or we fully haven't grasped what we were, go- what we were going to receive or what we currently have in Christ. And so we need to rejoice in the Lord. Notice how often we do that in verse 4. Always. So whether physical ailments or family conflicts, job loss, persecution, suffering, loss of loved ones, we can still be joyful in all those situations. So no matter what comes your way, keep on rejoicing 
at all times. Now, was Paul a guy that, that really could say something like this? Was Paul really a guy who was joyful in all of his circumstances? Well, think about when this, think about the, the audience to whom he's writing. The Philippians? Remember in Acts 16, where were Paul and Silas? They're in prison. And how gloomy of a situation was that, right? They were singing all right. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right, as they clicked the, the cup against the, the, uh, the jail cell there. No, they're singing hymns, right? They're joyfully singing hymns there in the prison while they're, while they're um, uh, living in, in terrible conditions. And so Paul can say this, listen, you can have joy in any circumstance in which you live. And then he repeats it there at the end of verse 4. So, our response to God's praise, first, should be faith. Secondly, it should be joy. Thirdly, it should be praise. Faith, joy, praise. God must be praised. He is a God who works great wonders. He is a God who is perfect in character. And and He is a God who is here. He is within you. He, he lives inside of you. He, we have that promise that God will be with us all the way till the end. That's not just a promise for Israel, by the way. That's a promise for us. I'm constantly reminded of this when, when, when the seeds of doubt start to set in, that I have the triune God with me at all times. That is, God the Father said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5. That's to believers. That's to Christians. And Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. And the way that God the Father is with us and the way that God the Son is with us is through the Spirit because in Ephesians 1.14 it says that He is the pledge of our inheritance. He's the down payment. Do you want to know how you can be sure that you have your riches secured and your home with, with, Christ, with Christ and God forever? you want to know how you can be sure of that? Because you have the down payment of it. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. And so we have the triune God who has promised that, that, that He will never leave us. He will be with us all the way until the end. And so that should give us something to, to praise God for. right? Just like when they recognized that Zion was strong because God was there, we need to, to recognize, hey, God's here. That should give us something to, to, to praise Him for. One of the reasons why I started out as I did with asking you to talk about how God has worked in your life. Finally, our response to God's presence should be proclamation. In verse 13, I think it is, it says that, um, back in Psalm 48, it says one of the reasons that we should do this, do this is so that we may tell it to the next generation. Our God is so great that the news of His greatness was never meant to die with the people who experienced it but rather that the news of His greatness would be spread and passed on to generation after generation so that the news of God's greatness would be memorialized. So that in a sense, as we receive the news of God's greatness from other people and we pass it down to others, we kind of join in praising God throughout, kind of, we could say, across eras. Right? We kind of sing with people who are now dead. We sing the same songs that, that people sang 4,000 years ago. right? This, the Psalms, we have them here. And we sing some of them on, Sunday, on Sundays and Wednesdays. We also sing with 
with believers who are now dead from 100 years ago, like Isaac Watts, or 500 years ago, like Martin Luther. And so it's as if our voices are joining in song with them about God's greatness. Why? Because people were faithful enough to pass down the news of God's greatness to future generations so that people like us could, could experience God for ourselves, could, could taste and see that He is good. Now, many of us will not be hymn writers. Maybe all of us will not be hymn writers. Maybe none of us will probably write a book. But, but neither did the people likely who passed the news of God's greatness down to you. Right? The people who passed it down to me and my parents, neither of them wrote any hymns or wrote any books that I know of, and yet both of them still speak from the grave. Because when they lived, their faith was real. And they did not keep the news of their God silent. They passed it on to the next generation. And so this applies to more than just parents, that we have this responsibility of proclamation. We need to, to make sure that other people know of God's greatness. God is great because God is near. And His greatness demands my faith, my joy, my praise, and my proclamation. All right, any questions tonight? Psalm 48?